Well, thank you everybody for joining us live here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy in Stockbridge. The snow has begun to come down. I think it's going to be a mini blizzard, so we made a few people made it out here. God bless you. We have, this is going to be one of my favorite talks we've done of the 85. Um, it's on going to be on icons. And specifically, are they graven images? Does the Bible prohibit them? And then we're going to talk specifically a little bit more about the divine mercy image and stuff you've never heard because I've never said. And I'm going to begin with a little bit of a duplicate about the first five minutes of a talk I did last year on statues because some of it applies the same to statues as, as icons. But then we're going to break into some amazing stuff, and we're going to show you some miracles. And then please stay with us, or at least come back at the very end. We have something very special at the very end that we're excited to tell you about that we've also never mentioned. So let us begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you send the Holy Spirit down upon us to bless us, to open our minds and hearts, to receive the grace you wish to bestow. And through the most incredible and beautiful image of your Son, the incarnate face of God the Father, through the Son, may us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, live your divine mercy. And we ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So it's exciting to bring you back to seminary. This was a big thing we studied in seminary. So I worked a little bit with Chris Sparks, our theologian, dug up uh, my notes from seminary because of a big thing called iconoclasm, which was a heresy that said we can't have images. And so now the church has clarified that very clearly, and we're going to explain it. So... <clears throat> As you saw, these icons, are they miracles or are they prohibited graven images? All right. Now, many non-Catholics say that having grave images, graven images is idolatry, but not really. You'd have to take the picture off your desk, as you've heard us say before, because those are technically graven images. And so we, we know that there's more to this. But the claim that you cannot have graven images is actually not biblical. And we get these letters all the time. You have graven images. I saw these images in your church. Blasphemy. No, that's not what the Bible says. This comes from Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5, that says you should not have graven image images for the purpose of worshiping them. The very thing is your God, like the golden calf. No, we don't do that. All right, God forbade the worship, for instance, of statues or icons, but did not forbid their religious use. Interesting. All right, so let's take a look at our next uh, thing. And if you're here with us, you can follow along our slides. If you're here at the Shrine on our YouTube channel, Divine Mercy, you can follow along. We're going to be showing slides, which will be posted up and remaining. You can catch also after the talk. It'll remain up for permanent. But here's a picture of what? That's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And what's interesting is that God commanded that cherubim angels be carved graven images be carved and placed on the ark this is exodus 25 18 through 20 what about david 
David's plan for the design of the temple included statues of angels. So God can't contradict himself here. How could he say one thing that you can't have them? And then another one, he tells, commands Moses to put them on the ark or David to put them in the temple. No, he didn't contradict himself because he never said you couldn't have them. He says you can't worship them. Ezekiel 41 verse 17 describes graven, carved, means carved, images in the temple. And it says he was shown in a vision on the walls in the inner room and on the nave where carved likenesses of cherubim shall be. Carved, graven. Again, we don't worship these, issue, these images. You know that. What about this one? Take a look at our next slide. Moses in the desert was commanded by God to carve a bronze serpent, to make a bronze serpent out of bronze and to lift it on a pole so the sick could gaze upon it and be healed. This was foreshadowing the cross. So that when people see Jesus risen up on the cross, that they will be <clears throat> healed. This is from Numbers, chapter 21, verse 8 and 9. One had to just look at it, which shows that statues and icons are to be looked at, not worshipped, used ritually, not just as art. This is interesting. Not meaning worship, though, as I keep saying. Christians, the earliest Christians, used statues paintings, to recall the story of our faith because most were illiterate. Most were illiterate. And so this is how they taught their faith. Do you know that the Bible, the canonized Bible that we have today didn't come till 350 years after Jesus? The books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who picked those? Why didn't we pick the Gospel of Thomas or Matthew why did we pick, uh, I'm sorry, Tom, sorry, Thomas or Peter? Why didn't we put the Gospels of Thomas or Peter into the Bible? Those aren't in there. They existed. The church determined through the Holy Spirit, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the other books. But that wasn't determined till 350 years after Jesus died. If this is the case, how did they teach their faith? The early Christians taught their faith through icons, images, statues, paintings. This is how they did it. Many Protestants have pictures of Jesus in their Sunday school and teach. What about nativity sets? Many, many non-Catholics have nativity sets. Those are graven images. Those are no different than our statue of Jesus on the cross. But yet many Protestant, many non-Catholics have the nativity set, think nothing of it, say, oh, that's wonderful. But let us have a statue of Mary, and they go to pieces. It's the same thing. In fact, the nativity set has a statue of Mary, <laughs> at least in the accurate one. All right, so when people begin, it's, the problem is this. When people begin to adore the statue as a god, like the golden calf, that's when God becomes angry. Well, Father, don't tell me this because you Catholics say you don't worship the idols or the images or the icons or the statues, but I see you bowing them in front of them and kissing them. 
So you may not call it worship, but your actions are worship. Your actions of bowing to a statue, kneeling before it, and kissing it, I don't care what you want to call it, it's worship. Hmm, interesting, good point, right? They cite Deuteronomy 5, verse 9, where God says you shall not bow down to them. Oh, well, how do we then explain this as Catholics? Very interesting. Though, yes, bow, bowing down can be used to, to, to be worshipped because I'm going to bow down before our Lord when, in the Eucharist later today when I go for my holy hour. You better believe I'm going to bow down. So it can mean worship. Yes, it can. And God is saying don't do that in front of somebody else that you're worshipping. Many, many non-colics will claim that, you know, you don't adore, you don't worship, but as I said, you're kissing them, you're praying to them in front, or sorry, you're praying in front of them. Nobody knows we're praying to a statue. We're, we, we, we ask for intercession of what they represent, but we'll get to that. So is kissing or kneeling down before an icon or a statue the same as worshiping an idol? No. Not necessarily. Now, it could be if you're the golden calf, okay? Now, Jacob, let's talk about this. Jacob bowed down to the ground on his knees seven times to his older brother Esau. Genesis chapter 33. So if the Bible explains that, I think we need to understand that that is... That is very, very important because the Bible is saying right there that it happened. What about Bathsheba? She bowed down to her husband, David. This is in 1 Kings chapter 1. What about Solomon? He bowed down to his mother, Bathsheba, 1 Kings 2. None of these were worship. None of them. They were honor. In Japan, I've told this before, this goes back to my other old talk. I went, um, I used to work in the Detroit auto industry where we used to design eight and a half and nine and a half inch ring gear, uh, ring gear rear axles for midsize Chevrolet vehicles. And so we would meet with the Japanese businessmen that would come over and joint ventures and anything. And the first thing that they would do when they met us is a Japanese would hand their business card and oh, they would bow down. Or if you gave them your business card, they would take your business card and they would bow down. Do you think they were worshiping me? Hardly. They were probably laughing, thinking, what the heck does this stupid kid think he knows? They weren't worshiping me. Out of a sign of respect, they would take your business card because your business card was your identity. It was who you are. It is everything you are to the Japanese in that business card. So it's an honor of respect that if you hand your business card to that Japanese businessman, he bows. He's not worshiping me. Like I said, he was probably laughing, thinking this kid doesn't know anything. And yet we say that this is automatic worship. No, it's not. What about when you're knighted by the king or queen of England? All right, Lord Mountbatten in World War II was knighted. He knelt down 
before the king and was knighted. Does that mean he was worshiping the king? No. None of this means worship. A Catholic kneeling isn't worshiping the statue or even necessarily praying to it any more than it is that a non-Catholic kneels with a Bible. I've seen non-Catholics take Bibles and they kneel in the presence of the Bible. Well, are they praying to the Bible or worshiping the Bible itself, those pages, that pieces of paper? No, they're acknowledging the God from which that Bible came, just like we are acknowledging the God that that icon represents. St. Paul encouraged, what about kissing? Oh, I can't believe you Catholics. You kiss, what? Paul encouraged Christians to greet one another with a kiss. This is Romans 16 or 1 Corinthians 16. So bowing and kissing doesn't necessarily mean worship. Will you Catholics change the second commandment? You notice we get that one a lot. Because the commandments are different between Catholics and non-Catholics. Our first commandment is you shall not have any other gods before me. Non-Catholics share that. Protestants have that same first commandment. But their second commandment is you should not carve graven images. Our second commandment is you should not use the Lord's name in vain. Oh, there you go. Right there. You Catholics took it out. You removed it so you could idolize and worship your statues and your icons. No, 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 no. The Catholics did not delete that second commandment, it's built into the first for us. By not having any other gods before me, which is our first commandment, that includes no graven images that you're worshiping of another god. Do you know the Jews did the same thing? Here's what's really interesting. They say that we deleted this prohibition of idolatry so that we could, as I said, worship our statues and icons. But this is false because, as I said, we group them differently. Do you know the Bible does not list the commandments by number? The Bible does not say the first commandment is this, the second commandment is this, the third commandment is this. The Bible doesn't say that. You know what the Bible says? The Bible gives 14 commands. Well, wait a minute, Father, I thought there were 10. The Bible, if you count them, actually gives 14 prohibitions. Now, if that's the case... What the Jews did is they grouped it into 10 because 10 is a powerful number symbolic to them. So guess what do you think they grouped? The Jews grouped not having graven images along with no having no other gods before me. That's what we Catholics did. So if you're attacked as a Catholic about not having the second commandment, you can say it's built into the first exactly like the Jews did. Very interesting. Very interesting. <clears throat> In Exodus 22 to 17, this gives the, two, the Ten Commandments, as I said, there's actually 14 imperatives. I said prohibitions. It's really imperatives because some are things we do, some things we don't. So to arrive at 10, some of them were grouped together in different ways. Now, why did the Catholics group the two first two commandments together? Because in the ancient world, polytheism, meaning multiple gods, you have more than one god than the real god, and idolatry were the same. They were united. 
So the first two commandments to the Jews were saying the same thing. So they combined them. The Jewish numbering of the Ten Commandments always grouped these together. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make yourself a graven image. They grouped them together. So if the Jews did that way before us Christians, which one do you think you should follow? Well, we as Catholics follow the Jews. They knew the Ten Commandments very well. The numbering of us Catholics, as I said, follows the Jews and sort of the Lutherans. So I should not say all Protestants. The Lutherans actually follow the same way we do. Interesting. Jews and Christians abbreviate the commandments so that we could have 10, just like the Bible discusses. It says, the Bible says there's 10, but doesn't number them. Now, we summarize the Sabbath commandment as remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But you know, in the Bible, there's actually four commandments listed with that. Now, non-Catholics don't argue that. If you read the Bible... There are four verses that refer to remember, keep holy the Sabbath, but we all only have one commandment. Why? Because they go together. This is what we're saying. So Jews, Catholics, Lutherans, we put no graven images together in the first commandment with having no other gods. Because if your graven image is a god, you violated the first commandment. Having it is not the problem. Worshiping it is. Now, we as Catholics, we follow St. Augustine's tradition, and the Protestants follow the Greek fathers. So who's, which one's better? It's just depending on how you look at it. God didn't say one or the other was right. As long as you understand, they encompass all of what he wanted us to learn. All right, so let's talk about more of this. Let's go on. Now, some non-Catholics also say that Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4 Verse 15 prohibits no likeness, not even making images of God. This is fascinating. Is this true? If you go to seminary with me, which I'm taking you back right now, I'll save you the money and the time by giving you the answer. The Bible does say you are not supposed to carve likeness images of God. Well, if you don't understand it, you're going to point to that and say, you Catholics are crazy. But read Jewish tradition, or I should say the early Christian tradition. Listen to this. Early on, Israel was forbidden to make any depictions of God because he had not yet revealed himself. So yes, the Jews were prohibited from making any image in the likeness of God because he had not yet uh, revealed himself and they could have got it wrong. They could have made it a bird or a golden calf. They were pagans. So worshiping animals was common and God did not reveal himself yet. He didn't till later, like Daniel chapter seven. Later, the Holy Spirit revealed himself as a dove. So God did reveal himself later. So the Protestants use these images when they're talking about the Bible. They use the Holy Spirit as a dove because later God revealed himself. The incarnation, God showed mankind an icon of himself. So Father, when did God reveal himself? Fully 
at the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. Paul said he is the image. And guess what, everybody? What language was the scriptures written in? Greek. And guess what word is used in the Bible, in the Greek, when Paul said he is an image of the invisible God? Icon. I-K-O-N, from which we get the word icon, I-C-O-N. If you go to the original Greek, Paul says he, Jesus, is the image, icon, I-K-O-N of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So let's look at our next slide. This is where we get the image of divine mercy. Christ is the tangible divine icon of the unseen God. We see this in the divine mercy image. So now God has revealed himself in images. The image of his face. It isn't wrong for us to use these images now because God has now revealed himself. Back to the Jews in the Old Testament when God said, don't do it, it was before he had revealed himself. Now God has revealed himself. Very important. The Catholic Church has always condemned idolatry. This is not idolatry. There is a distinction between thinking that a piece of stone or plaster or a canvas image is the God, and you're worshiping that canvas, and desiring to, to, to worship that piece or object, versus remembering Christ, who we see in that image. Totally different. The making and use of religious statues and icons is not against the Bible. People always write to me, Know your Bible, read your Bible, exclamation point, capital, capital letters. Yes, we do know the Bible. This is why we teach what we do. By scripture, Christians now make images or icons of God because we've seen him. He's revealed himself. So statues and icons get us to contemplate God just as much as the word does. We are human beings. We hear the word, we see the image. Why, if God gave us both sight and hearing, would he not allow himself to reach us through both sight and hearing? Nobody argues hearing the word of God on Sunday. No non-Catholic does. But God didn't give you just ears. He gave you eyes. And with those eyes, we see the icon of the Father through the face of Jesus the Son. Wow. This is how he works, or even his saints through which he works. All right, the reason for all this is Jesus. Jesus himself gives us the ultimate example of the value of statues and icons. Now listen to this. Christ in his humanity opened up a new way to pray to him, right? Iconography, or icono iconography, that's right. I'm trying to remember how I would say that. Iconography, this is what he did. He opened that all up. Now, Christ becomes for us a person, and those are represented. 
Colossians first, chapter one, verse 15 tells us Christ is the image again of the invisible God, as I just said. When Jesus said, who has seen me has seen the father. This is John 14. He does not mean that he and the father is one. They are one, but he doesn't mean he is the father. He is the son. So he is somebody who represents another. The image of divine mercy is something that represents something else. Jesus himself to us. Christ is the ultimate icon revealing God as father. And listen to this. It shows, he shows the glory of the father. Now this is really powerful. Just as the word became flesh, this is John 1, and revealed the father, representations of God's angels and saints are also icons of Christ because they reflect the glory of God. So the Bible tells us that we can have something that reflects the glory of God, and the angels and saints do that. Paul says, I urge you then to be imitators of me. So he was an icon. The church continues to hold up these great men and women as icons of the life of Christ. They imitated him. That's what an icon is. It's an imitation. Wow. Your picture on your desk is not your family. You're not going to take that picture and, and treat it the same way. I mean, it's going to remind you of your family. It represents your family. But you're not going to leave your family at home and take a picture of them to the baseball game while your family sits at home. And you say, well, I took my family to the baseball game because <laughs> I got their picture. Your little boy's going to be like, Dad, where were you? Well, son, you were with me at the game. See how far that gets you. All right, so we need to take very seriously these injunctions to praise and honor the great members of God's family. Where does it say that, Father? I get this one all the time. Father, nowhere in the Bible does it say to honor the saints. Oh, yes, it does. Psalms 45, 17, Luke 1, 48, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, 1 Timothy 5, 17, 1 Peter 5, 5. I'll go on and on. It does say we give honor to those great members of God's family. This is a far cry from idolatry. All right, now, few things are more delightful than seeing a little child draw a picture of God. Do you really think, when I saw, this was back a couple summers ago before COVID, we had a bus group and they were here and there was a family and part of the bus group and we were out underneath the tents having lunch, and this little girl, I think she was probably about four, she wanted a picture or a piece of paper and a pen from her mom or a pencil, and she started drawing a picture of God. I had a million things to do. I had to get over to the gift shop. I had to get back over here to be able to get ready for the next group coming in. Had to get back over to the MAC, and I sat there enthralled watching this little girl draw a picture of God, who she thought God was. Do you really think God is angry with that little girl trying to draw a picture of him? Come on. No way. His heart must be filled you know, so this is why we get a little bit too hung up this, right? But yes, adults can take it the wrong way, 
We can become, there are adults who are Satan worshipers that worship that dumb goat creature and things like that. You know, the pagan religions, yes, they were filled with idols and statues that they dreamed was their God. So you got, we got to be careful. Um, look at our next slide. This is the infamous one. We've been talking about the golden calf, right? So this is one reason why God forbid Israel from trying to depict an image of him because they would get it wrong, as we said before. At the point in time, we had not yet revealed, God had not revealed his Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we weren't qualified to do an image of him. Now we are through Jesus. You know, before we couldn't, we couldn't picture him, but now we can. God has imaged himself for us in the Son. And now we can use that image in things like art and prayer. This is powerful. It's the best way for us when we are left on our own to relate to God. We relate much better when we see a picture of something. How many times we say to ourselves, geez, if I just had a picture of it, like when you're trying to work with somebody over the phone and showing them something to do, if you just had a picture of it, how much easier is that? Way easier. When God himself, though, leads us, that's the key. We just don't want to go off, and I don't want to draw a picture of, of, a, of a boot and say this is God because he needs to kick us all in the rear end. That's my idea of God. No, now we're getting a little carried away. Okay, that's not what we mean by that. God has actually helped give us his image, his icon. We don't have to make it up. You Catholics are making up. No, we don't. Let's look at three of the most incredible icons in the history of Christianity. One, the Shroud of Turin. Let's take a look at your screen. Look at the Shroud of Turin. This is a picture I've never seen before. I was doing research. Look at the image in the middle where Jesus would be laying crucified in the tomb. That's how he would have looked per the image of the shroud that was laid over him. That's amazing. What's the shroud? The shroud's an icon. We didn't make it up. God gave it to us. What about the next one, Brother Mark shows? Our Lady of Guadalupe. We didn't make up what Mary looked like. We know what Mary looked like because she gave us the icon. You can see on your screen, that's Our Lady of Guadalupe. Mary revealed who she was, an icon of herself. Let's go to the next one, the Sacred Heart of Jesus. God revealed, Jesus revealed who he was to St. Margaret Mary out of the Coke. My heart, that's the sacred heart, the most sacred heart of Jesus. This is an icon that God has revealed to us. So we just don't make it up and say, well, your God is, is the sacred heart. Mine's a boot. Mine's a, a snake or mine's a dog. No, God gives it to us. That's what our Catholic icons are. They're just not randomly made up. God gave them to us. They are all icons that God gifted. All right, let's continue. Now, the best of them all, I think, the image of divine mercy. Right up there with the shroud, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and the Sacred Heart. 
on February 22nd. So guess what, everybody? We're coming right up on this anniversary. I laugh because I asked my dad once what, and I put this in my book. I asked my dad what anniversary February 22nd was because he's been learning his faith. And he says, it was the day the, the U.S. hockey team beat the Russians in 1980. So this is true, but there was a bigger reason of something on February 22nd. It happened back in 1931. Now, ironically, guess what it was on that day? The Feast of Icons. In the Eastern Church, they celebrate the Feast of Icons to defeat the iconoclast or the iconoclasm, the iconoclast heresy that you're not allowed to have images. It was defeated. And the church in the East celebrates that. And guess what? Jesus appeared on that day of that feast, the Feast of Icons. It's the first Sunday of Lent. So February 22nd in 1931 was the first Sunday of Lent or the Feast of Icons. And Jesus appeared to St. Faustina at her convent in Poland. Now let's read what he said to her. You can look it on your screen. Again, if you're here in the shrine, you can look up this video afterwards. Let's look what it says on the, shrine, or on the screen. Jesus said to her, paint an image according to the pattern you see with the signature, Jesus, I trust in you. I desire that this image be venerated first in your chapel and then throughout the world. Notice, venerated, not worshiped. Many non-Catholics do not understand the difference. I promise the soul that will venerate this image will not perish. Jesus, I'm counting on that promise. Don't be afraid to tell him that. Everybody watching right now, live, or if this is weeks later, I want you to say, Jesus, I'm counting on that promise. I'm trusting that promise you just made. He says the words, I promise that the soul that will venerate this image will not perish. If you say, Father, well, how do I get this image? Hang in with us. We're going to show you how. I also promise victory over its enemies already here on earth, especially at the hour of death. I myself will defend it as my own glory. Woe. St. Faustina's spiritual director, Blessed Michael Sapochko, he then commissioned an artist to paint it because she wasn't a painter. So what did they do? They made an icon. Jesus said, paint the image. Paint an image according to the pattern you see. But when Faustina first saw it, she wept. She cried. She said, Jesus, this isn't as beautiful as you are. No image will ever capture Jesus in the beauty that he is. We know that. But what did Jesus say to her when she complained? She said, nobody will paint you as beautiful as you are. Jesus says, don't worry. He said, not in the beauty of the color, nor in the beauty of the brush lies the greatness of these, this image, but in my grace. In other words, he's saying, don't look at the beauty of the color or the brush stroke, but in the grace I give you through this image. Powerful stuff. So this image of divine mercy has it all. This image of divine mercy, we'll show it again, not yet, but I'll have Brother Mark show it in a minute, contains all the characteristics 
of both Eastern and Western icons. People always see the Eastern icons of the Orthodox Church like, wow, why don't we Catholics have that? This does. Same in the West or the East, it's a remarkable fusion of the two East and West traditions. Shows me, and I think Father Seraphim used to say this, that God wants to bring the East and the West churches back together. This image has it. The image captures the entire Paschal mystery. Now we're going to be showing a show coming up in a few weeks on EWTN about the image, and I'm going to go through that in much more detail. So please watch our EWTN show, Living Divine Mercy, on EWTN or EWTN.com. They have it on demand if you miss the episode, or you can get it on our website. We'll post it, uh, livingdivinemercy.org. If you can just remember that, livingdivinemercy.org. We have all those shows up there, and I'm going to go into detail on this image. Now, this captures the Paschal mystery. Now listen to this. You want to know where this is biblical? You want to know where this icon is biblical? I'll tell you where it's biblical. Leviticus chapter 16 and Sirach chapter 50. Listen to this. Clad in this garment, the high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. Jesus is clad, clad in his high priest garment in that image. It says that he could enter into the Holy of Holies of the temple and offer the blood of sacrifice. Well, that's exactly what he did on the cross for us. And then he was to emerge from that inner sanctuary with a hand raised in blessing for all the people. This is what we see in the image. This is the high priest. Jesus is the new high priest. The high priest can now bless his disciples. That's us. With the most perfect blessing, the blessing of blood and water. Why? Because that's baptism and holy communion. Now we have a special intimate union with him. Now let's have Brother Mark put the image back on the screen. For those of you here in the church, it's the image right there that says, Jesus, I trust in you above our altar. Let's look at this. Everything is in this image. So I'm going to have Brother Mark hold it up for a few minutes, keep it on the screen while I walk through this. Look at this image. First of all, what is Jesus wearing? He's wearing a white alb like a Catholic priest. He's the priest. He's the high priest. All right? So Holy Thursday is captured in this image. Remember, the Holy Father said the best images of Christianity are those that capture the Paschal mystery. The entire Paschal mystery is in this image. When did the Pas what is the Paschal mystery? Paschal mystery is the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. This is the only image I'm aware of that captures it all. Let's keep looking at it on your screen. First of all, Jesus is dressed as the high priest. His white alb, right? The blood that we'll talk about in a minute is the blood of the sacrifice of the priest. What happened the day after Holy Thursday that started the Paschal mystery? What is Jesus doing as the high priest? He instituted the Eucharist. What is Jesus doing here? He's giving us communion through the precious blood. And remember, if you're not receiving precious blood during COVID, that's okay, because the host has body, blood, soul, and divinity in it. 
What happened then? Jesus at the Last Supper instituted the priesthood. We see him dressed as the high priest. Next, what's the next part of the Paschal Mystery? Good Friday. What is Good Friday? He is crucified. We see Jesus here. Now, I admit, in the restored Vilnius image, it's hard to see the wounds of the crucifixion, but they are there. If you look at the original image of divine mercy, you can see him a little better. I think in the restoration, that's the one thing they missed was darkening those wounds of the hand and the feet. His feet are actually covered by his albs, so you can't see it. But on Good Friday, the next part of the Paschal Mystery, it is there. It is there, the wounds. What happened next? Easter. What happened? Jesus resurrected. What do we see in the image? Jesus' resurrection. Notice the halo over his head. He's in his glorified state. He is resurrected. Then what happened 40 days after Easter? The ascension. How is the ascension on this image? That was a little trickier, but the Bible tells us before Jesus ascended to the Father, he blessed all those present. What is Jesus doing? He's blessing those present before this image. Just like he ascended to the Father, this is what he did. This is the ascension. And then finally, 10 days after that was Pentecost. How do we know what happened on Pentecost? It was the giving of the Holy Spirit. How is Pentecost shown in this image? The blood and the water, the two rays coming out of his sacred heart. Those two rays, the blood and the water, are critically important because what are the two, and now Brother Mark can take that image down. Oh, and you know what? Look at the left foot. I'm sorry, before he takes it down. I'm probably killing poor Brother Mark up there. His left foot is stepping forward. <coughs> He's coming to us. He said, divine mercy is mankind's last hope of salvation. You think he's going to let us go? No, in the scriptures, he tells us, if one sheep is lost, I will go get it. You can see his left foot stepping forward. All right. Now, those blood and water rays are critically important. The blood and the water, why? Because Satan has only two tools. Sin and the result of sin is death. You've heard me say that many times. And those two rays wipe them both out. If Satan's first tool is sin, what wipes out sin? The cleansing waters of baptism and confession, the pale ray, the water. What's Satan's second tool? Uh, death. And what wipes out death? Life. And what was life to the Jews? Blood. Blood is the life of the being. So that blood ray wipes out death. Blood is life. So we see this image has it all. What about Jesus coming out of the darkness? Yes, our times are dark. Our times are darker now than ever, maybe. And Jesus is coming out of the darkness of our times, stepping toward us. He's blessing us even before you ask for the blessing. <laughs> That's what I love about this image. I go to the chapel. I'm all frustrated. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I can't even get into prayer. It's midnight. And I sit down and I look up and he's already blessing me. It's like, whoa, only our God, right? <clears throat> then he said, Jesus, I trust in you. This is very important. Why? Why did he demand that be put on the image? Jesus, I trust in you. You all, you know the answer, even if you don't think you know the answer. You want to get to heaven? I want to get to heaven. We wouldn't be here if we didn't want to get to heaven. And there's only one way you get to heaven, grace, the grace of God. 
And Jesus said, trust is the vessel by which all grace is received. In other words, you want to get to heaven, you need grace. Okay, Father, how do I get grace? You got to receive it in a vessel called trust. What does trust mean? When you do somebody, when you, when you trust somebody, it means that you accept their help. And one of the ways God gives to help us is this image of divine mercy. So by accepting the image and, and venerating it, you're trusting in him. And trust brings in the graces that Jesus said you need to get to heaven. How do we know this? Let's look at our next slide. Jesus said, let no soul fear to draw near to me, even though its sins be as scarlet. Wow, that's me. My mercy is greater than your sins and those of the entire world. Don't think your sins are greater than the mercy of God. I am offering people a vessel with which they are to keep coming for graces to the fountain of mercy. That vessel is this image. Are you kidding? That's why this image is so powerful. That vessel is this image with the signature, Jesus, I trust in you. The graces of my mercy are drawn by means of one vessel only, and that vessel is trust. The more a soul trusts, the more it will receive. Amazing. We have received countless testimonies of people receiving from this image. Miracles, healing, protection, conversions through this merit, this image. We have one story on our website about Ron Regalis who sent us pictures. We wouldn't have believed it. His house in Hurricane Sandy uh, was roaring up the West Co uh, East Coast. He was on Long Island. Everybody was fleeing. He took the image of divine mercy as he was running out the door and consecrated his house to it and placed the image in the face of the storm. When he came back a week later, all the houses in the neighborhood were destroyed. His was untouched. Now, we're not saying it's a magic wand or a rabbit's foot. We're not saying that. God may still allow things to happen. But the trust, the higher the trust, the greater the chance that we will be protected. We have a video out there called Seal the Doorpost. It's gotten almost a million views. And we ask you to place an image on your door, especially during COVID, for protection of your house and your family. Where do we come up with this? All right. St. Faustina's Confessor. Blessed Michael Sapochko wrote this. Let everyone, this is his words, quote, let everyone procure for their homes this image of divine mercy because there will yet come trials and those homes and entire families and everyone individually who will hold this image of mercy in deep reverence, I will preserve from every sort of misfortune. The time will come when all those who do so will give witness to the miraculous efficacy and to the special protection of mercy flowing from this image. Did you hear that? Again, it's not magic. We're not worshiping this image. This image is what it depicts. It represents Christ himself, and that is who can grant this protection. Let's read Michael Sapochko's next quote. Brother Mark can show on the screen. Listen to this. When chastisements for sins come upon the world, whew, and they will, 
They are. And your own country, listen to this, your own country will experience utter degradation. The only refuge will be trust in my mercy. I will protect the cities and homes in which the divine mercy is found. I'm telling you right now, if every home in the United States or the world had this image, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in. I will protect the persons who will venerate this image. The only refuge will be trust in my mercy. Amazing. Do you know in World War II, Hitler was very upset with Warsaw? in Poland because they had this uprising and he decided to level the city. He bombed it into oblivion, destroyed the city, leveled it. Some accounts say there was four houses standing in a particular area of Warsaw that was leveled. Everyone had the image of divine mercy. Everyone, that's documented. Again, I can't emphasize enough. We're not worshiping this image. It's not a magic wand or a rabbit's foot. It's what it represents, the grace and mercy of God, the protection of God. Now, I want to tell you a quick story that I find just utterly amazing. Saint, or, uh, Blessed Michael Sapochko said to protect your home, to hang a blessed image of divine mercy on your door. Blessed. And you know, catechism tells you you can bless your own image. Catechism 1669, I think it is. You'll have to check on that. I don't think I wrote it down, but I think it's 1669. You can actually bless your own image. Now, better to have a priest bless it, okay? But get that image blessed. Hang a door. Even if it's a little prayer card, even if it's a framed picture, we had a video that said, put it on your door. Let me tell you an incredible story. Two ladies in Massachusetts on the East Coast towards Boston followed this video and they put the image of divine mercy above their door. They've been protected. Well, the storms come and rain comes and the weather, the image got a little bit weathered and they wanted to replace it. Now, what do you do with something that's blessed that you want to replace? You either burn it, surprisingly, people get shocked by that, or you bury it. That is the proper way. We don't throw it in the garbage. We don't toss it out to rot. If you have a blessed image, you burn it or bury it. This is miraculous to me. So this woman took this image that she was going to replace. She tried to burn it. The image burned all around the image of Jesus. Take a look at your screen. That's the ash. Take a look at your screen. That is the ash. When you burn a piece of paper, can you read the text? If you have a white piece of paper and you burn it, do you see the image that's left? No, it's a piece of ash. The whole paper burned. There was nothing left but a piece of ash. And look at the image. Let's have Brother Mark show the next image behind that. This very clearly, the image of divine mercy, the image of Jesus never burned. This is incredible to me. So they contact one of our priests in Poland and he said, I want you to do something else. He said, where did you get this image? He said, I printed it from the Marian's website. And he said, did you have a bless? She said, absolutely. 
She said, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to print another image, but don't bless it. And respectfully burn it. Not burning in def defecation or, or dishonor, in honor. Burn it. So she printed an image off the same printer and burned it. Let's look at our next slide. There was nothing left of it. Unblessed, the image totally disintegrated. That's why we want these images blessed. Incredible. Now, before Mark shows the next slide, I want to tell you about another story we're going to tell you on EWTN coming up in a few Wednesdays. It's going to be March 16th, if you want to mark your calendars. March 16th will be our show on the image of divine mercy. I'm going to be talking about a lot of other stuff I don't get to here. And in that episode, we're going to tell you about an amazing miracle of a guy that knew Father Seraphim. Let's post the next picture of Brother Mark and look. This is a version of the divine mercy image, which we have here as an Eastern icon, as an Orthodox type of icon. And this guy named Ugo Festa had a vision of Jesus coming out of that image. And he had MS, he had multiple sclerosis, he had all kinds of diseases, he couldn't walk. And Jesus came out of that image, touched him, all of a sudden, he was perfectly cured. We're going to have that whole story on March 16th at 6.30 East Coast time, 3.30 West Coast on EWTN. Or again, you can see it after that on our website, livingdivinemercy.org. It's incredible. All right, we're not going to stop there. We have an image here at the United, in our Marian Helper Center that we want to be careful. We're not trying to claim that this is miraculous. We're not trying to claim in any of these, none of these. Am I showing you, am I claiming that the church has validated a miracle? Okay, I, I want to be very careful. These are just factual events. I want to show you one more. This is an image in our Marian Helper Center of an image of Jesus. And if you look closely, it wept. You can see the trail of tears pouring down Jesus' face. And this came from a very special friend of ours named Fran out in California that had this image in her house. And all of her statues and images weep. Now again, we're not saying anything miraculous, but, but the bishop at the time said she was fully allowed to talk about this. So that's why we're talking about it. That image of Jesus, divine mercy, wept. And you can't really see it well here. But if you could see it in person, you'll see all the tears accumulated on the word trust. All the letters are white. The word trust turned green. You know what I think? I think it's very clear. Mankind's lack of trust is causing our Lord to weep. Jesus said what hurt him the most in his passion was not our sins. It's our lack of trust. That's what breaks our Lord's heart. This image, if you do nothing else but just say over and over, Jesus, I trust in you, will help you. Now let's watch a quick video. Then we're going to take our break here and then we're, going to, we're almost done actually, believe it or not. We're going to have a very short return time. I mean, when we get back, it's not long before I finish. 
So if people are here that need to use the restrooms, they can. But we're going to show an incredible connection of the Shroud of Turin to the image of divine mercy, the image of the face of Jesus, and it's matched to the Shroud of Turin. The clip we're going to show is from the movie Love and Mercy, Faustina. Let's take a look at what this amazing connection is all about. Well, if you take the original image of divine mercy, this image, and compare it to the Shroud of Turin, it's actually a perfect match. The actual features of the face of Christ on the image perfectly match the image of the face of Christ on the Shroud of Turin. This amazing connection can clearly be seen in this clip from the movie Love and Mercy, and is also available on DVD. For the first time, this similarity was noticed by Father Serafin Michalenko, who showed me the effect of comparing both images, which was done at his request in the 1990s. The results of my anthropological studies of the two faces from both images show a complete convergence with such characteristic facial points as the middle part of the eyebrows, the base of the nose, the cheekbones, jaws, the wings of the nose, the beginning of the upper and lower lip, and chin. It's worth analyzing the same details by observing the images in three dimensions. It is a face model created by Professor Mignaro in 2002, based on the measurements of the Shroud of Turin and the veil from Oviedo. The veil of Oviedo is the object that covered the face of Jesus when the body was still hanging on the cross, and this veil remained there on the face until the body was placed on the shroud. Then the veil was removed and the body was covered with the shroud. Traces of blood on the shroud and veil give us full information of how the face of Jesus looked like. I put all three images on each other, and it turned out that the eight points determining the most characteristic features of the face perfectly matched. So if you don't see that and just have your breath taken away, check your pulse, because... That's incredible how the face, basically Father Seraphim was involved with it when they took the image of divine mercy and they plotted several points, like a hundred points of the face, the difference distance between the nose and the bridge of the nose and the tip of the nose, the width of the bridge, the, the eyes, the depth of the socket. When they did all that and they superimposed it against the Shroud of Turin, it's an exact match in Incredible. All right, so let's finish with a couple things that I found were very interesting. This I got from the help of Chris Sparks, and uh, he had gotten it from Loyola Press. I think it's very interesting. Um, now, let's go back to what an icon is, because that's the topic of this talk. Now, you all know icons, right? You use computers. You're like, where's the icon on my desktop? Right? You're used to it. You don't even know it. Icons are popular. Any toolbar on your computer has icons, and each symbol or each icon represents something. That icon is not where you're going to do your work. It represents how to get into the work, just like the image of divine mercy is not Jesus, but it's a representation of how to get to Jesus. 
Each one represents a greater thing. Your little icon on your desktop, it represents a greater program or a process that's going to let you get to where you want to go. But it gives you a quick link. Now, would you rather on your computer have to go through six menus, go in there and manually have to restart Microsoft Word every time you open it, or wouldn't it be awesome to have an icon right on your desktop? A quick link to get to where you want to go. That's what the icon of Jesus is, but in a much greater way. We don't get it. Religious icons are similar in that they are also symbols or representation of something greater. In this case, it's not a program or a process like Microsoft Word. It's greater. It's a person. It's Christ or one of the saints. Not just Jesus, but one of the saints too. You know, Father Seraphim, God rest his soul, he just passed away a year ago. He said, as St. John Damascene put it, if we deny that Jesus, who came to us in human flesh, can be depicted in art as an icon, if we deny that, we deny the very fact that he was truly human in his human nature. Hmm. As I said, these icons are like quick links. They give us a kind of snapshot into heaven. Amazing. More than that, these religious icons are a form of prayer. They make you aware of the presence you're in. When you go into a church and you see the icon of Jesus, you're like, uh-oh, I better straighten up. When I know I've done something really stupid, I sometimes don't even look up at the icon of Jesus <laughs> because I'm like, oh man. But that's exactly when you want to look at the icon of Jesus. What's the very definition of sin? Taking your eye off the creator and putting it on the creature or the created thing. So when I'm in the chapel and I'm too uh, scrupulous, and I don't even look up at the icon of Jesus. Instead, I bury myself in my phone and I might send somebody a text or something. I'm taking my mind or my eyes off the creator and I'm putting it on the creature or the created thing. That's the very definition of sin. So don't be afraid to keep your eye on that image, even if you've messed up. Ask God right then and there for forgiveness, then follow it up with the sacrament to guarantee it. Powerful, powerful stuff. And icons, those are what help us do that. They're a form of prayer, making you aware of the presence you're in. Icons just aren't art. People think that they're just art. An icon is different than a beautiful painting. A beautiful painting of Jesus and Mary, like, oh, that's so beautiful. That's art. An icon is living. It's alive. It's a window into eternity. The divine mercy image is an icon. It's not just religious art. This is, this is important. They're sacred art. That's the difference between just regular art and sacred art. They're bringing the viewer to the sacred. When you look at it, you're being brought to the sacred. They follow the tradition of the church that has for centuries communicated our faith in pictures. But now it's giving you a living experience of the sacred. Not just, not just some nice to look at museum. You don't do it like you're in a museum. 
Oh boy, that's really nice. No, you bow down and you say, Lord, have mercy on me. This is how the early Christians learned their faith. The purpose of these sacred images is to bring heaven into the present. Think of how you were when you were a child. I still never forget my mom's nativity set. And I was enthralled looking at the faces and the images and that set. There was one of the wise men that looked really mean. I was scared of him. He's really mean. And he was holding a lantern. He had this real mean look on his face. It really got into my soul. But when you look at the baby Jesus in the same way, but opposite direction, he can get into your soul. You have to just be open to it. Or what about a beautiful Christmas card? Does anybody who believes in God, who's non-Catholic, who accuses us of idolatry through icons, not accept a Christmas card? A Christmas card can depict the beauty of God through visual representation. So the next person that tells you that you're guilty of idolatry because we have an icon of Jesus say, have you ever sent a Christmas card? Because I assume they're Christian if they're trying to correct you, praise be to God, but ask them that question. Icons are windows to heaven and doorways to the sacred. It's a window to eternity. And that's why they look odd sometimes. You ever notice how weird sometimes they look? As I pointed out, we did a little video yesterday. Um, Thursday, our Thursday Ask a Marian videos are a little more fun. There's one on the mirror with cameraman Giuseppe, and we were building images. But I pointed out in that video that sometimes the saints have long pointed toes or perfectly round heads. Nobody has a perfectly round head. They look odd. So let's take a look at our next slide if Brother Mark can put up for us. Why is this? Why do these religious icons sometimes look so odd? All right. This uh, Patricia Caston, who I, I dug up, did, did some really good work on this, and I think it's powerful. Now, when you look at that, it's not like a photo, is it? That's not a photo, and it's certainly like a, not like a Rembrandt trying to portray a person. What is it? Well, it looks distorted. Look at Jesus' perfectly round head there. Icons are meant to remind us that there is more beyond this world. It's a window to eternity. That's why these icons sometimes look deformed or disjointed. The pictures are not, you know, it's funny because the pictures are not there just to be looked at in the way, as I said, we would in a museum. Icons don't even look like real people sometimes. Let's look at our next one. This is the most famous one with Mary and Jesus. The icons don't even look like real people. Why? Because they're meant to be spiritual portraits. Look at Jesus and Mary there. They reveal God or a saint who is with God and existing beyond the material world. Again, I keep saying a door to eternity, window to heaven. Let's look at the next one. This is a famous one. We don't need, we don't have just Jesus and Mary, but we have saints too. Look at these saints. This is why certain features of icons and the saints and their faces appear so different. Their ears are large. Why does that? That means you should be listening. Their mouth is small, which means we should be doing less talking. <laughs> this is all in the icons. 
all right? And you're invited to enter in with that small mouth that's saying, be silent. Don't talk so much. That's my big one. You enter into prayer, contemplation. You need silence. You need to listen. Bigger ears, smaller mouth. So they put it all out of perspective here to accentuate it. With an icon, you are invited to enter into silence, into prayer, into contemplation. So the icon is a portal. You don't pray to the icon, like the icon is going to help you. You pray in the presence of an icon. All right. And what's also interesting is the sizes of the figures are very interesting. You ever notice they're out of what we would call scale. The size of the figures reflect their importance in heaven. Isn't that interesting? Rather than their implied distance. So if you figure, oh, well, the picture's farther away, the image should be smaller, it might be bigger. And even if you're up close, you think the image should be bigger, it may be appear much smaller. Really fascinating. Sometimes they even look flat, the characters on there. That de-emphasizes the physical body, focuses on the spiritual. Everything pretty much is in a golden light, the golden light of heaven. They're highly symmetrical, perfectly symmetrical. That reflects the divine order, the harmony of the universe. And that light of grace that is said to come through the icon, like that golden light, is the same in the east as it for us in the west with stained glass windows. We have the similar thing on stained glass windows. You'll see some of the stained glass windows like we have here in the shrine are icons. So let's take the last of the last couple of slides here. So an icon of Jesus, I bet you didn't know this, always shows Jesus wearing either gold, why gold? That's for heaven. Or white, why white for the resurrection? Or notice this image on your screen. He oftentimes wears a blue robe. I bet you didn't know this. And that is for his divine nature. And he wears a red tunic. That's for his human blood. That image, I bet you didn't even think about it. Jesus has a red tunic, that's for his human blood, and a blue robe for his divine nature. He's human and divine. That's why he has blue and red on there. Fascinating. I learned all this in seminary. We don't teach this in our churches. We don't teach this in the homilies. We don't teach this in our CIA. And this is why we get shellacked when we're called to defend our faith. And we're accused of worshiping icons. Jeez, do we? I guess we do. Maybe I should leave the Catholic church and go to that non-denominational church down the street. Look at what you're missing. When I go to those non-denominational churches, they're barren. They have no beauty. This is beauty. This is the sacred. So to wrap up here, I wanted to talk lastly from my Seminary notes about iconoclasm. This is a big heresy centuries ago. So the church itself, the Catholic Church, questioned if this is idolatry. Are icons allowed? This is called the iconoclasm heresy. So iconoclasts regarded art as permissible, but only if it, like Islam. Islam does this too. You know, you can't have a sacred 
image in Islam. They call it idolatry. And so many of those iconoclasts said that art can only be restricted to secular things, not the sacred. Iconoclasm basically represented radical secularization of art, right? To only be decorative, not to pray or anything like that. Now today, we've overcome that. In 843, that was condemned as heresy. So if anybody tells you you're blasphemous, you say, well, actually, the church that was founded by Jesus Christ declared iconoclasm as blasphemous, which says you can't have images. So actually, that's the blasphemy. The Orthodox Church now celebrates this victory of the triumph of orthodoxy. And guess what? They celebrate it on the first Sunday of Lent. When did Jesus appear to St. Faustina, I said, in the image? The first Sunday of Lent. When was that? 1931? February 22nd. It's coming up here in a few days, the anniversary. It was the Feast of Icons. Father Seraphim used to talk about this all the time. So as we wrap up here, this is important. Icons constitute a special category of religious art. Not just any religious art. Special category. They belong to an unwritten, sacred tradition that is equal to written tradition. There are three legs to our stool of the Catholic faith we follow the Jews. Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. That tradition is oral. That's not biblical, Father. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 Paul said, hold fast to the traditions that I teach you, both oral and written. This falls into that sacred tradition. Not man-made. Man did not make the image of divine mercy. God gave it. Man did not make the Shroud of Turin. God gave it. Man did not make the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Mary gave it. Important. So finishing, as I said, they have an authentic mission to reveal the faith in visible form as Scripture does in written form. As I said before, God didn't give us just ears to hear the Word of God. He gave us eyes to see it. How do we see it if we're not allowed to have a single image of it? That is church teaching. John Paul II said, quote, the events of salvation history give meaning and orientation to our life, that the glory that is promised us already transforms our existence, and icons capture this. Wow, did you hear what John Paul II just said? John Paul II basically said, the events of salvation history give meaning to our life. And this is already in existence in the icons. They are not simply pretty objects like other religious art, but faith made visible. So divine mercy, this divine mercy image allows humans to see the face of God, the face of the Father's mercy as the Holy Father said in his encyclical Misericordia Voltus, the face of the Father's mercy. 
You know, Brother Mark can show, that is why these multiple images of divine mercy, we get a lot of these letters. Which one's best, Father? There's the blue one, there's the brown one, there's the black one. All right. All of these images, all these versions are valid. As long as they have the elements we just described, Jesus' hand in a blessing, the rays coming out from the heart, the left foot stepping forward, dressed as a priest. All those images are valid. There's no difference. And so in this image, we venerate. It's no different than kissing the gospel. No difference. Non-Catholics have no problem kissing the Bible. But heaven forbid you kiss an image of Jesus. There's no difference. All right? Such actions, yes, they can look scandalous and idolatry, like idolatry. Those, to those who are unfamiliar with Christian teaching since the first century. That's why we got the iconoclastic controversy in the 7th and 8th centuries, which has now been fixed. This is why many non-Catholics reject images and statues. But it's been confirmed by the church that veneration shown to the icon passes on to the person it represents. He who prostrates before the icon does so before the person who is represented therein. The words of the church at Nicaea. When we venerate an icon, we are not worshiping the wood or the paint, but the one it depicts. And since that belongs to apostolic tradition, it does merit our attention. And so, God bless you. You've all been very patient, but I'm super excited to tell you as we go about a new process here at the Marian Fathers. You know, for years we've been trying to perfect the image that we've been making here of our art. Uh, we've had canvas. We've had a lot of different images. You may have ordered them from the last several years. Uh, Jesus, the Divine Mercy, Mary, St. Joseph, all these others. And we feel bad if maybe you've gotten one from a couple years ago that wasn't made to the proper quality that you would have liked. That has now all been fixed. We've got some amazing new processes. Brother Mark's been involved in it. Some of our employees have been involved in it. And I want to show you a couple of pictures because this is so much fun. Here's a picture of cameraman Giuseppe and me downstairs making these images. We are actually making everyone. They're not shipped in from China. They are not brought in from overseas. They're made right here at the National Shrine of Divine Mercy. The next photo shows a bunch of us. In that photo, you see cameraman Giuseppe. Behind him is Brother Patrick. On the other side is myself way in the back. That's Brother Alex making the frames. That's Zeke, one of our employee staff members helping out. It's a lot of fun. Nowhere else are you going to get a handmade canvas image of divine mercy made by priests and brothers than you will right here at the National Shrine. So Brother Mark can zoom in. These are what we call gallery wrapped. Look how beautiful now, how tight the corners are. These right now are a special way for you to protect your home. These are canvas. It's beautiful canvas. This is handmade, as I said, by priests, brothers, seminarians, 
employees, volunteers, laity. It's awesome. And we have these images right now here at the National Shrine. These on um, anywhere else are run about $80, 90 to $100 because they're gallery wrapped, they're wood behind it so you can put it. We're only asking for a donation of $24.95 to cover our costs. Now, if you can't, if you can't afford it, this is how much I want this image in the homes of everyone. If you can't afford it, and God knows, you know if you really can afford it or not, I will send you one. No questions asked. I'm sorry I didn't put this on the screen, but you can remember, it's real easy. Peter James, P-E-T-E-R-J-A-M-E-S, one word, at marion.org, M-A-R-I-O-N, if you can't afford one and you don't want to have to spend the money that you need to feed your family. Understood. I will send you one. Now, look up on your screen. If you want to order one or more, you can go to divinemercyart.org or shopmercy.org. You can see our wide range of images. In fact, in addition to Saint or, uh, Jesus, we have beautiful Saint Joseph images. Here's an image. I don't know if Brother Mark again can uh, zoom in on me. I'm holding it. I'm holding it. Um, I don't have one on the screen, but I'm holding it. We have beautiful canvas, St. Joseph. We have the Blessed Virgin Mary that you can see here as well. This is a beautiful one called The Innocence. Now, Father, I'm so disappointing you. You're selling things. No, 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 no. This is a suggested donation. Again, if you can't, I'll send you one. We're not selling them. We're asking for donations to cover our costs. And I'll tell you, all the money goes right back into this ministry. This is, this is money that, that turns around and we invest back into the equipment, the canvas, the wood. Holy mackerel, every time I turn around the wood, they're raising the price on the wood and the canvas on us. But we're going to keep going, praise be to God. And we want you to be part of this. So if Mark can put back up on the screen again. Oh. I think you just did them. Sorry, I keep messing them up. We forgot the gold frame too. The gold frame that I'm holding in my hand, if Brother Mark can show back up on the, on the ambo here. This is the beautiful golden frame images. This is a different version of the divine mercy image. Here you can see the wounds of the crucifixion quite a bit more than what I'm holding. And the gold frame, if you wanted something for nicer decor. But remember again, what's more important is not the beauty of the paint or the brushstroke, it's in the grace that these images represent. How amazing is that? So now I go back to Brother Mark, if we could put back up on your screen, divinemercyart.org, and you can see a whole wide range of sizes, designs, different versions of Jesus. We have shopmercy.org, or if you just want to call and say, I would like to order one, you can call us at 800 Four six two seven four two six, And again, if you're outside of the United States, I'm going to send you back to Peter at peterjames at marion.org. Because if you can't get it shipped, if you're somewhere in Asia or Europe, we might need Peter to help you personally try to get it. So you can visit him at peterjames at marion.org. So please get this image. And you know what? If you don't even get it from us, print one off the internet, 
download one. We have on our website, you can download a free image and just print it out on your printer. But get you and your family protected. This is the beauty of the icons. This is the beauty of sacred art and how much God gives us in these gifts that we shouldn't scream blasphemy and idolatry. We should rather scream, thank you, Lord, have mercy on me. And that's what this divine mercy image does. And so again, please, if I've offended anybody, we're not selling these, we're asking for a donation. Oh, and one last thing. If you want me to personally bless your image, I will do it. But we can't sell blessed images, okay? So what you have to do is call and place an order, but then say, I want Father Chris to personally bless it. I don't care if I get 5,000 requests, I will do every single one, okay? So if you want it blessed, you have to make that special request. But I would, I would wait till Monday to make that one. If you can still want to order it today, you can. We'll hope that the message will get to me because we have 24 hours. So you can still order it. But if you want it blessed, you have to make that special request and I'll bless it for you. But we can't do it till after you order it because canon law doesn't allow us to sell blessed images. Makes sense. But again, all the donations go back into our ministry and we're thankful to God that we have this ministry. So get the image, no matter where you get it. God bless you and continue to stay strong in your faith. And until next week, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. Org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.